welcome in to News and Views with Tom Lamprecht. The stories you've heard and the ones you need to hear. To the citizens of Russia, you are not our enemy. They have increased the number of troops and more troops are on their way. Canadians causing disruption and chaos. There'll be serious consequences for this lawless activity. Democrats have created inflation. Complaining about the problem doesn't make inflation better. This. And Washington, Democrats own it. Your life, your values, your voice. This is News and Views with Tom Lamprecht on Talk 96.3 and 103.7. All right, welcome in. It is News and Views for a Wednesday. Say Wednesday? <laughs> it is Wednesday. This, this has been a weird week. Uh, it's pretty bad when you've got to double check what day it is. Um, the maps are in. There are maps now that have been uh, have gone public uh, for Three different maps, one, well, actually four different maps. The House have their congressional map. The Senate has its congressional map. Then there's the Senate uh, map for the state Senate and the state House. Uh, the question is, will they pass? And uh, that's really going to be up to the Supreme Court. I was talking to Mitch Kokai earlier uh, this afternoon, and he said, you know, it's a little difficult to figure out whether they're going to pass or not because there wasn't really any guidance. You know, as it, husbands have all been in that situation where their wives are upset with them and they don't know what they've done and they're trying to figure out, okay, how do I make it right? But the wives won't tell them and they're totally frustrated. That's probably a poor example, but uh, husbands know what I'm talking about. But that's what the Supreme Court did to the North Carolina state legislature. They said, eh, we don't like it, but we're not going to tell you what we like. We're not going to tell you how to make it right. Mitch Kokai is the senior political analyst for the John Locke Foundation. He is on the phone with us now. Mitch, thanks for joining us again. We talked earlier when this had gone through the uh, North Carolina Supreme Court, and now the new maps are out. What is your thought? Well, first of all, I like your uh, marital analogy. Uh, (laughs) I hadn't heard it described that way before. I think the one difference is that sometimes with husbands and wives, the husband knows he's done something wrong. But the wife won't even say anything about it. There you go. Say everything, everything is fine. In this case, the Supreme Court did say that there was something wrong and that the General Assembly should do something about it. But they didn't really say how you can make it right. Basically, they just said these are partisan gerrymanders, which are unconstitutional. You need to go back and try again. But we're not going to come up with some sort of uh, bright line, clear standard of what you can do to make this situation better. As we're chatting right now, the state Senate's redistricting committee is discussing its plan for the 50 state Senate districts. And basically, Senator Paul Newton is up there saying, well, you know, here's the here's a comparison between this new map that we have and the map that we enacted. Uh, And he's describing how it would be more likely to elect uh, Democratic candidates this time around in certain districts. He mentions that under the initial plan. Uh, the, the, the number of districts that were won, if, if you use the uh, results from Governor Cooper's election, the, the number of districts that Democrats would win was smaller under the enacted plan. Under this new plan, it would be higher. Uh, he talks about the uh, limiting the number of voting districts and precincts that are split this time and the changes that were done in splitting municipalities. So they're basically setting out a lot of criteria saying why they think this plan should be able to comply with what the courts have ordered, but 
We don't know. I mean, the Supreme Court did not set out a clear standard. So the General Assembly is on schedule to submit maps by the deadline that was set, which is Friday. And then by next Wednesday, a three-judge Superior Court panel will decide whether these maps meet what the Supreme Court called for or whether uh, another map or set of maps should be substituted for those maps. And then there's a possibility that whoever doesn't like what the three-judge panel does could appeal to the state Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court could once again look at the maps and say yay or nay. So it really is a lot up in the air. What will happen over the next couple of days is that the General Assembly will pass its maps, but that is certainly not the end of the story. Now, we've got two maps on for the congressional districts. The House has their version. The Senate has theirs. How will they decide which they're going to go with, or is it going to be a? Are they going to morph it into something that we haven't even seen yet? I think that the map that will end up getting passed is one that we haven't seen yet. Uh, from what I understand, and from the way that things have played out during the course of the debate t- today, it looks as if the Senate's map will be the basis for whatever comes forward. Uh, We know that the first map of any that appeared was the House's congressional map that appeared publicly last night. But the way that the House set up its debate about maps today, they basically said their congressional map was going to be for discussion only, and their map for the 120 state House districts was a map that was actually going to be voted on today in the House, whereas the the Senate had, had initially spelled out a plan to vote on both its congressional map and state senate map today. That plan was changed as of about 4.30 or so when the Senate's redistricting committee met. Senator Warren Daniel said that the congressional map was not going to be considered today, but would instead be considered at 9 o'clock tomorrow morning in another committee meeting. So it looks as if Whatever discussions are taking place about the final congressional map are still taking place and probably won't get resolved until at some point this evening, or perhaps not even until the very early hours of of Thursday morning. But it looks as if the Senate map will at least be the, the, the starting point for any further negotiations that are taking place. They're not going to pass competing maps in the chambers then try to resolve the differences. That would just take too long. So it looks as if the Senate will pass a map, perhaps close to the one that it's already unveiled, perhaps something different that incorporates some of what the House did. But once it passes through the Senate, then it'll go to the House. The House will pass that map, and then you'll have the the three maps. The, The Senate and House are not going to tinker with each other's maps for their own chambers. That's a tradition that that goes back decades, if not a century or more, that each chamber basically writes its own map and the other chamber rubber stamps it. Since Republicans control both chambers, uh, you're not going to see a situation where because of partisan differences, one chamber says, no, we're not going to accept your map and, and then have the possibility that it happens to them. They will write their own maps for their own chambers and then have to come to some sort of agreement on the congressional map. It looks to me like on the congressional map, the the biggest change was, I mean, there's some, for eastern North Carolina, at least in the county I'm in, Pitt County has now been split. The previous map gave uh, Greg Murphy the entire county of Pitt County. It looks like they have uh, 
given um, his residence, put his residence into uh, Congressional District 3, which would put him in his own district, although he could run not living in District 3. But it looks like the biggest change was uh, uh, basically the, the Triangle area, uh, the Greensboro area, and the Charlotte area, those counties which Republicans had split those counties. I think each of them were in three, uh, had three different districts split three ways in the old maps. The new maps, there's they're just split in half. It looks like, and uh, which now the Republicans did do that for uh, a Republican advantage, which again their constitution allows for them to d- divide up the districts however they see fit. But it it looks like that was the major change. So as protecting the uh, incumbent Democrats in those areas. Yes, that was one of the the major changes, and that, of course, was a big complaint from the Democrats when the initially enacted congressional map came out was, look, the only maps, the only counties that you split more than once, because some counties have to be split just because of population. The size, right. uh, Size, exactly. But the only counties that you split more than once were uh, Wake, Mecklenburg, and Guilford, which are all big Democratic counties, and so the only reason you would do that, Republicans, is for your partisan benefit. I think, uh, given what the Supreme Court has said, Republicans figured, well, you know, uh, we're probably not going to be able to get away with any map that does more than one split of these counties. Now, of course, when you're looking at Wake and Mecklenburg counties, they have populations as such that you can't have them just be in one county. They're going to have to have a district within the county, if you make it as compact as possible, and then another district that will encompass a large additional section of the county plus other pieces of other counties. So that has to be done. In the triad area, you were able to do a little bit more in in keeping Guilford in the the one county area, and that was something that was uh, advantageous for the incumbent Democrat, Kathy Manning. So uh, I think that is, you're right, one of the big changes. And I think another big change, and this is something that also cropped up during criticism about the initial map, was having a Sand Hills-based district. That was mm-hmm. something that, that Democrats had complained about, saying, look, the Sand Hills is the largest area of North Carolina that doesn't have its own district. One of the people who was loudest about saying that was Senator Ben Clark, Democrat from Hoke and Cumberland counties who has been talking about running for Congress. And so some people uh, said, well, you know, it's kind of a self-serving argument, but certainly it was an argument put forward about these maps. Now there is, at least under one of the plans, uh, a Sand Hills district, and it would be a a bit of a a swing district. It looks like it's maybe slightly favoring Republicans, but certainly in a good year for Democrats, the way that this district is is drawn, it would be one that Democrats could win. And certainly in a good year for Republicans, which 2022 has been talked about as being, it would be a good Republican district. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens with that. I think people in the western part of the state and in the Charlotte area are also interested in looking at what happens with that far western district and the district that some have described for a while as being the the Tim Moore district, Mm -hmm. that when it was originally drawn, might have been a, a good place for 
the Speaker of the House, Tim Moore, to run. Well, is that been, uh, District 14? Is that 14, the new 14? Yeah, they've changed some of the numbering. Uh, it, 14 was was the way that it was drawn, and then 13 was going to be the, the, the far western district, which had been 11. Some of the numbers change, so I, I, I don't want to throw too it many looks, numbers it looks out. Like, it looks like Cumberland County is now 14, and the far west is 11. Uh, if I'm looking yeah, at the, so, you know, the Senate, so eleven, uh, so eleven is is what it used to be, and some of the numbers are different between the different plans. So uh, it, I, I've, I've been treating them more as geographic regions right, than the numbers because right, those right. numbers could change again. But uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens there because we know that it, the incumbent in the Western District, Madison Cawthorn, had talked about running instead for the district that had been described as the Tim Moore district. Well. The way that it's drawn now, does he continue to, to run in that district, which now is a little bit less favorable for Republicans, or does he go back to his old district and then run against uh, Chuck Edwards, who is a state senator who has said, regardless of what Madison Cawthorn does, he's going to run out there? That, I think, is, is something that's also of interest to people who've been following this very closely. And then, you know, there's that uh, candidate who wants to run on the Republican side and has support from the Club for Growth. Bo Hines, he's been talking about four or five different districts by now, and who knows where he's going to run once yeah. all is said and done. Yeah. Uh, a sidebar uh, question for you, since you brought it up. Madison Cawthorn and what the North Carolina State Board of Elections is trying to do, that, that is the most bizarre, outrageous thing I've heard since they decided to uh, change the rules of the election last fall. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable that they take it upon themselves to tell Madison Cawthorn, that he's he, he doesn't meet the qualifications to run? Now, the, the State Board of Elections, and I'll, I'll give them a pass on this, they haven't done anything yet to that. But the, the campaign against Cawthorn is actually coming from some voters who are led by two former Supreme Court justices, one Democrat and one Republican, although a lot of people look at that Republican Bob Orr and say he's not being very Republican and hasn't been for a, a number of years. But they're the ones who went before the state board and said, look, uh, Madison Cawthorn played this role in an insurrection because a lot of the folks on the left are talking about the January 6th uh, attack on the right. Capitol or the riot or mob or however you want to say it as an insurrection. And if you define it as an insurrection, then you could employ a part of the, the Constitution that says no one who's involved or who aided and abetted an insurrection can right. run for office. The again. 14th Amendment. Now, now, now what the, exactly. Now, what the, because that was done, of course, because of the, the Civil War and the Confederacy. But what the uh, Board of Elections uh, is scheduled to do is to set up a committee to look into this complaint about the, the candidacy. So the State Board of Elections hasn't taken any step yet against Cawthorn and wasn't able to, to even go forward with setting up a committee to look into this because the, the panel dealing with redistricting uh, blocked them from doing so, saying, look, we don't even know what the districts are, so you can't decide whether he's a candidate for a district if we don't know that there's a district. So right. once this redistricting issue is resolved, then it will go back to the Board of Elections and, you know, at that point, certainly the Board of Elections could take steps that we could slam if they decide that Madison Cawthorn okay. can't run. Right. But I will, give, I will give them a pass at this point and say, look, the, the, the board is actually following, from what I understand, 
it's processed when someone from the outside makes a claim of this sort that a person is not qualified to run. Uh, so, so I'm I'm willing to 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 hold uh, keep the powder dry at the point of the board of elections. I hear you, but it is an issue we need to watch. Now, on some of these um, congressional districts that have become less inviting for Republicans, and I'll take a look at uh, the the new um, congressional district one here in the eastern part of the state, which was Butterfield's old um, district. I know there's a lot of Republicans that are in line to run for that. Um, if, as a uh, student of politics, are in and particularly looking at this uh, first congressional district, you know there was a new poll out today uh, from Interactive Polling, which reflects a lot of polls in terms of the president's favorability. In North Carolina, he had a 33% favorability, 58% unfavorable. And, you know, there's a lot of talking heads out there saying that no matter how bad the maps could be, and, of course, this is happening, what's happening in North Carolina right now is happening up in Kansas and other states as well. But as a, if you were an advisor to somebody like Sandy Smith, who's talking about running or has, has said she's going to run for uh, NC or the Congressional District uh, 1, um, what would your advice be in that, okay, it's, it's going to be a more difficult district to win in, but, boy, you got some wind in your sails. Yeah, I think one of the things that, that anyone who's thinking of running in these offices needs to consider is what's happening right now in 2022, which you've just discussed, and that is it looks as if, at this point, it's going to be a really good year for Republicans. So no matter what the maps say, as long as you're within striking distance of, uh, of having a chance to win, uh, it might not be a bad idea to go ahead and throw your hat into the ring. Right. Those of us who remember 2010 will know that going into the 2010 election, Democrats had huge advantages in our legislative delegation in both chambers and in districts drawn by Democrats earlier in that decade designed to elect Democrats. Republicans won a supermajority of the state Senate and came within a few votes of winning a supermajority in the state house. Right. So maps don't tell the whole story. That's one of the things that, that is a, a, a continual problem in the redistricting discussions is that people tend to think that the maps tell the whole story, that whatever the map says, that's going to be how the, the political process is going to play out, and whichever party wins this debate now, they're going to control the, the General Assembly or have the edge in our congressional delegation for the next decade. Well, that's not necessarily true. And in fact, when the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court, decided to get out of this whole issue of partisan gerrymandering, one of the things that their opinion said was when courts have tried to determine that a map will entrench a particular party in power, they're almost always wrong usually within one election cycle or maybe two of that sort of ruling, the political winds have flipped hmm. and the elections have gone the other way. So even if you're in a district that looks slightly favorable to Democrats, if you have already been starting that campaign process and have been getting ramped up, I wouldn't think that a person who is in that situation should throw in the towel knowing where things stand politically this year, it could be a really good year regardless of the maps. Another 
uh, side point to that is I think as Republicans have been approaching this redraw, the idea of setting up competitive districts has been a little bit more palatable to them because they think, well, you know, at least this time around, if you're looking at competitive districts, those should be pretty good for Republicans, at least in this cycle. Right. And, you know, you can look ahead to 2024, 2026, and, and, and keep that in the, on the back burner. But if you're looking straight up at 2022, having a, a bunch of competitive seats might be pretty good for Republicans. I have, uh, we've talked to Keith Kidwell on this and Jim Perry, and uh, I've heard uh, your own um, Dallas Woodhouse talk about the fact that this November, if the the, the uh, majority in the Supreme Court changes, the legislature could go back and appeal this case back to the Supreme Court, and indeed they could say, well, you know what, you do have the right to draw the maps as you see fit, and they could go back and draw a map very similar to the original maps that they came up with. Uh, is Can you verify that, and do you think that will happen? I don't know that they'd be able to appeal this particular case. What would be more likely to happen is that the new General Assembly, uh, especially if they won supermajority margins in both the House and Senate, would likely come up with new maps, and then if someone tried to take them to court, they'd appeal it to the state Supreme Court. If they have a 4-3 or 5-2 Republican state Supreme Court, they are likely to get a more favorable view for the notion that it's the General Assembly's job to draw the districts. Certainly on the congressional map, that's a possibility because the General Assembly can redraw congressional maps whenever it wants. There is no oh, is that right? It's not just the 10-year deal. That Not for a congressional map. Now, for the legislative maps, the state constitution says that you're not supposed to have this mid-decade redrawing, but that also is dependent on the way that you read the actual constitutional provision because the, the wording of it is, the General Assembly redraws the district, and then it says something along the lines of when enacted or when put in place, uh, you don't redraw then again until the next census data comes out. Well, does it count to be enacted if it's a court-ordered map? Uh, if it's a court-ordered map, one would suspect that the General Assembly's enacted map was never enacted, and so the General Assembly would not have to abide by any constitutional restriction of that sort. Of course, that is something that's likely to be debated and discussed through uh, lawsuits, and the lawsuits would end up at the state Supreme Court. So uh, there might be a more favorable view at the state Supreme Court that time around. You can't ever completely predict what a court's going to do, but certainly a court that has five Republicans and two Democrats is more likely to have the view of the Constitution sure. that our current three Republicans do than the Supreme Court with four Democrats does today. And obviously Paul Newby, Paul Newby's uh, dissent on their decision was pretty much, you know, his, his, his rationale was this is unconstitutional, what the majority on the Supreme Court did. I mean, he just kept coming back. How can, how can you go against the Constitution and, uh, and, and you are creating law, which you don't have the right to do? Um, how many uh, uh, Supreme Court seats are up for re-election this go-around? There are two up for re-election this time around, both held by Democrats. So 
at, at worst, for the Republican perspective, you stick around with the 4-3 Democratic majority if for some reason the Democrats win both the seats, uh, Justice Sam Jimmy Irvin the fourth running for re-election and the open seat when uh, with uh, Justice Robin Hudson retiring. Right. The best news, the best case scenario for Republicans is you win the open seat and knock off Justice Irvin and have a 5-2 uh, Republican court with the only two Democrats being left, Mike Morgan, who has been among the Democrats, the, the one most likely so far to go along with Republicans when there have been splits, and then Anita Earls, who uh, is, is the most activist Democrat on right. the court right now. So it's entirely possible you could have a 5-2 uh, Republican court, probably on these election issues. Uh, Earls and Morgan might be on the other side, but on many other issues that are important for the Supreme Court, it would likely be 6-1 in many cases with everyone except Anita Earls ruling the same way. That would be sweet. Mitch Kokai from the John Locke Foundation. Mitch, thanks so much for your insights. Always good to talk to you, and uh, we'll keep an eye and see what happens over the next couple of days. Sounds good, Tom. Thanks so much. You bet. Stay with us. More news and views coming right up. This is your Drive at 5, an ENC with Tom Lamprecht. Welcome back to News and Views on Talk 96.3 and 103.7. Welcome back in. Taking a quick look at your uh, weather forecast tonight. Partly cloudy, low around 49. Thursday, oh my goodness. Talking about uh, mid-70s and uh, lots of sunshine. Thursday night, showers come in. Possibly a thunderstorm or two. Uh, low Thursday night is only going to be 65. Showers in the morning on Friday, and then cloudy in the afternoon, a high around 70. So uh, get out and enjoy the warm weather coming in tomorrow. Uh, talking with Mitch Kokai uh, concerning the new maps, yeah, I have heard from um, one individual already who was going to run for the state house. Uh, a lot of folks know Drock Vincent. He was uh, talking about running in um, the 9th House District which is the southern part of Pitt County. And uh, he has now been um, put in the 8th district. And uh, he's dro- he's not going to do it now. Now, I, I think and I hope uh, Drock continues to uh, look at politics. He'd be a great state representative. He's a very conservative guy. And uh, I hope he will uh, not be totally discouraged and get out of it completely. I hope he'll... I mean, you've got to make a wise decision. And when I was talking to to Mitch about, you know, the fact that this is a good year for Republicans to run regardless of the congressional districts. I don't know that that's necessarily so with some of the uh, state Senate and state House districts. Some of those are are still highly uh, partisan in favor of the Democrats. And I think that the 8th House District, um, which is the northern part of Pitt County, I think it goes into uh, Nash County, is... Uh, I'm pulling from memory on that, but um, it, it would be a hard one for a Republican to win. But uh, I hope uh, hope Drock and others. Uh, okay, we're disappointed now. Chances are you're going to see a new map a year from now. So uh, keep your powder dry, as uh, Mitch said. Uh, North Carolina, um, the uh, governor is supposed to uh, come out and have another. Uh, press conference tomorrow on the mask mandate. Roy Cooper is slated to hold a briefing Thursday. And uh, what's interesting is, will he now do what Democrats all over the country are doing? 
as I've used the illustration before, they think they're leading the parade. They turn around and they see nobody's following them. And now you have multiple counties across the state saying, not the mask, no more. Many of the counties here in the east have said, no, no more masks for the kids in the schools. It will be interesting to see if Roy digs his heels in, plays a Justin Trudeau, and says, no, by gosh, I'm the authoritarian. You're going to wear your masks. Well, the counties are saying, uh, no, we're not, Gov. <laughs> My hunch is, watch and see. It's going to happen tomorrow. My hunch is he's going to come out and say, ah, oh, cases are way, way down. And so we're following the science and we are going to uh, eliminate the mask mandate, which is what he should do. But I don't think it's because he's going to be following the science. I think it's because he's leading a parade and nobody is following Carolina Journal's reporting model legislation proposed by a higher education reform group in North Carolina would prohibit political and ideological litmus tests in hiring decisions for public K-12 schools and public universities. The legislation applies to schools that require applicants for employment to sign a document affirming their support for the diversity, equity, and inclusion agenda. Some applicants are automatically weeded out on based on their responses. For example, the University of California, Santa Cruz, admits to screening out applicants if the answers to diversity, equity, and inclusion questions fall short. Now, that university includes the students. Research from the American Enterprise Institute estimates that one in five university job descriptions require an affirmation of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And again, just like the North Carolina Supreme Court to the North Carolina legislature on these maps, they don't give you what the answer is. You've got to answer the questions, and if they don't like your answers, you're out. The model legislation was drafted by James G. Martin Center for Academic Renewal, the Goldwater Institute, and the Stanley Kurtz of Ethics and Public Policy Center. It requires no political test or qualification shall ever be required as a condition of admission into or promotion within any public educational institute of institution of the state as a teacher, employee, or a student. Diversity statements may stifle academic freedom and insert ideolo- ideology into faculty hiring. The um, So said uh, Jenna Robinson, president of the Martin Center. Here's the problem, though. Uh, you can make this and you can pass this into law. But who is going to be, who's going to have the oversight to make sure that this doesn't happen? And what will the punishment be if someone is caught doing this? I mean, that's where the legislation needs to be real firm. Not that, okay, university, you can't do it. When an individual at the university, they should not be able to hide behind the policies of the university. If they, if this is, if this passes and it should then those individuals who decide to take it upon themselves and say, I don't care what the legislature says, we're going to consider diversity, equity, and inclusion in promotions, in hiring, and in admissions. And when they're caught, when they're caught, they need to be fired. And if they're breaking the law, they need to be fined. I mean, I don't, I don't see them spending jail time for doing this. But they, and but and here's the problem, and you know I, again I'm not trying to make myself the center of it, but I, I faced the same issue with the quota system up at the FCC years ago, decades ago now when I applied for an FM station up in Maryland, I wasn't you know I wasn't the right gender, I wasn't the right color, 
Well, what the FCC did was they said, well, okay, and, you know, the, the, the courts got involved and said, uh, FCC, you can't do that. And they said, okay, well, he still loses and made up some other reason. And th- this is the problem. Now, I understand that they're not allowed to ask these diversity, equity, and inclusion questions, but somehow they'll get around it. They'll, they'll find a way to find out, and they won't, they won't fire or they won't not give a promotion or they won't uh, give it a mission based on diversity, equity, and inclusion, but they'll come up with another excuse, but they'll still do it. I mean, that's the way it works. I'm sorry, but I, 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 I mean— Thank goodness this is being considered, and let's hope it passes. But unfortunately, in this day and age, uh, it's, it's gonna—you're it, gonna have to weed out those people that are making those liberal progressive decisions to see anything actually change. Uh, I mentioned this to—you uh, know—we got to take a let's, let's go ahead and take a timeout. Then I'm gonna get to a new poll that's out about uh, Joe Biden and how the states view Joe Biden. One of the states, he's not only in low double digits, he's down in the teens. Uh, And this, as as Mitch Kokai and I were talking about, this is great news for Republicans in upcoming elections. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton and presidential candidate Hillary Clinton has finally reacted uh, earlier today to special counsel John Durham's filing. She said Trump and Fox are desperately spinning up a fake scandal to distract from his real ones. So it's a day that ends in why. The more his misdeeds are exposed, the more they lie. You know what's interesting about this? is Hillary is doing again what got her in trouble. She's lying about Trump. She's pointing the finger, making accusations that aren't there. And all she's doing now is doubling down. Hillary Clinton is uh, probably pretty low on the list in terms of ever seeing any light of day on her political career. I saw a video of her last night walking to a restaurant. A reporter was asking her, you know, what do you think of the Durham report? Um, Hillary didn't look good. Just saying. I, as I said yesterday, I think her Ambien prescription's got to be strengthened. But it's uh, she's just doing what she did. This, this is what got her in trouble. Now, obviously, you know, uh, lying to the FBI and uh, tapping into the uh, computers at Trump Towers at Trump's apartment and in the office of the presidency and planting uh, stories with the uh, CIA. And, uh, yeah, yeah, okay, that's that's uh, it, it's that's a little worse than what she said in this tweet. But again, the principle is the same. I'm not going <laughs> to Donald Trump. He's terrible. He's a commie. He's over there with the Russians. Uh Interesting polling out from a a polling firm called Interactive Polling. 
President Biden's overall standing nationally, the results are not good for Dems. And again, this is why if, you know, you're looking to run as a Republican in North Carolina District 1, which is obviously favorable towards the uh, Democrats, uh, maybe you ought to consider to hang in there. It is going to be a good year for Republicans. And again, I realize, okay, we're still... 10 months away, but uh, it's uh, it's going to be a good, man, not even that far, nine months away. It's going to be a good uh, a good year for Republicans. Uh, overall, he's minus 22, hitting the floor in the mid-30s. That's nationally. And uh, as Town Hall says, that's blowout territory. Among independents who swing battleground elections, two-thirds disapprove of Joe, uh, while less than one in four approve of his performance. And that's a net swing with Hispanic demographic. Um, it's just as bad. Um, how does he How does he do in, um, by, by the way, the most unpopular state Joe is in, and, you know, you're thankful that Joe Manchin is continuing to vote against the Biden agenda. Here's why. Joe Biden, in the state of West Virginia, approval, 17%, disapproval, 78%. With those kind of numbers, I think you can be pretty confident Joe Manchin is not going to vote for anything that Joe Biden comes out with. Um, Some of the swing states, Arizona, approval, 32%, disapproval, 61%. And remember, this is this is Arizona. Supposedly, Joe won. Some question there. Another state that supposedly Joe won, Georgia, thirty-one, four, fifty-nine against. Nevada, thirty-five, four, fifty-eight against. New Hampshire, clearly, a Democrat state. Forty-one percent for Joe, fifty-one percent against. Pennsylvania, 36% for, 57% against. Wisconsin, 36% for, 56% against, disapproval. North Carolina, 33% approval, 58% disapproval. So it is a good year to run. What's really interesting as well, the Democrats know they are in big trouble. Why? By the way, first of all, I guess you heard out in San Francisco, the— there was a recall of three school board members. And now David Axelrod. Now, just last September, David Axelrod was trying to shame and slam Republican Governor Ron DeSantis because he gave parents the authority to decide whether the kids wear, would wear masks in school. So back on September the 9th, he tweeted David Axelrod tweeted about DeSantis striking yet another blow for freedom of parents to endanger their own children and others. David Axelrod. What does he tweet now? February the 16th. Parents should absolutely be involved in their schools, their kids that they attend. Politicians absolutely should not. (laughs) Oh, how times have changed. So, uh, yeah, but three uh, libs out in San Francisco, they're on the school board, have been uh, ousted. Now, uh, by the way, the uh, mayor of San Francisco, what is her name, London Breed, I think her name is, 
you know, she can, and apparently she's the one that's going to appoint the new school board members. She came out and said, oh, you know, this is great. The parents have been involved and what they've done is wrong. And we need to really concentrate on the, the three R's I'm paraphrasing, but it was, you know, that kind of rhetoric. I have zero faith that she will actually come out and replace those libs with someone of a more conservative mindset. I have zero confidence. She'll put somebody in there just as bad. Yesterday, we laughed at uh, statements by Queen Nancy that Democrats had never been for defunding the police. It gets more ludicrous today. Democrats are reportedly being warned to deny that they favor open borders and amnesty on the thorny subject of immigration and the ongoing crisis at the southern border. So therefore, the border wall now, Politico reports that the Democrat Congressional Campaign Committee is recommending strategies to endangered lawmakers as they hope to avoid a barrage of attacks from Republicans on a variety of issues from defunding the police to critical race theory in addition to immigration. Included in the documents Politico viewed were moves to rebut GOP talking points. The strategy reportedly included this tip. Democrats should deny support for open borders or amnesty and instead talk about their efforts to keep the borders safe. Ha! <laughs> that, might improve, uh, that might prove to be tricky since Democrats have by and large supported administration efforts to dramatically roll back Trump-era border protections like border wall construction. Meanwhile, many Democrats have also backed a number of congressional efforts to grant amnesty for millions of illegal immigrants. Democrats pushed for an immigration plan approved within days of President Biden's inauguration, which eventually became the U.S. Citizenship Act of 2021 and was headlined by an eight-year path to citizenship for illegal immigrants already in the country. Um, Good luck with this. Now, here's the interesting thing, though. you got to remember, there are a bunch of uh, mush heads out there that don't listen to anything but CNN, MSNBC, ABC, CBS, and NBC. They only read the New York Times and the Washington Post, and those people will gladly carry the water for them. They will start reporting probably tonight that Democrats, oh, they've always been against open borders. Oh, they've always been for you know, you know, they're they're for the the police. They're for safe communities. You watch, go flip on one of the liberal networks tonight. You watch, they'll be more than happy to carry the water for them. Hey, we got to take another time out. Stay with us. A little Justin Trudeau info when we get back. It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood. A beautiful day for a neighbor. First thing you should do after work. I turn on the radio. Check in with Tom and Benny. Gotta know what's happening in my city. What's going on in my backyard. Things that are happening locally. I like the local news. Things that I don't hear everywhere else. I don't hear everywhere else. For the local news you want. Kept me informed for all of the local stuff, you know. Let me know what was going on in the local community. Eastern Carolina's news sources. News and views on Talk 96.3 and 103.7. Believe it or not, the New York Times actually got one right. Uh, broken clocks were right twice a day, right? As Trudeau condemns the Freedom Convoy protesters, demand they stop trying to block our economy, um, our democracy, and our fellow citizens' daily lives, um, the New York Times pointed out today, this is the New York Times editorial board, that back in November of 2020, 
he had a whole different perspective. Back then, the liberal prime minister supported the farmers' protest over agricultural reforms, which blocked main arteries into New Delhi. Trudeau said then, quote, Canada will always be there to defend the right of peaceful protest. Interestingly, about two weeks ago, India, Indians diplomat Deepak Vora pointed out that Trudeau is being a hypocrite. Let me begin by saying that the Canadian prime minister who tried to advise us on how to deal with the farmers' protests last year and swore that Canada will be there to defend the rights of peaceful protests has run away from the truckers and others, even as we speak on the 30th of January 2022. They are rallying against vaccine mandates, inflation, supply chain disruptions, etc. So the fellow who was trying to give us advice has actually gone into hiding. He has betrayed their trust. The saddest thing about betrayal is that it never comes from your enemies. It comes from those you have faith in. Some of the most poisonous people come disguised as friends and family. My motto has always been to protect the oppressed, even if he is my enemy. But I will never forgive the traitor, even if he is my friend. Wow. <laughs> Uh, a lot of folks out there are saying uh, Justin Trudeau is, this is the beginning of the end of his political career. I don't know how old he is. He's a fairly young guy, but uh, he has blown it big time. A coalition of Canadian premiers and U.S. governors have written a letter to Trudeau and Biden saying that we are writing to request that you immediately reinstate the vaccine and quarantined exemptions available to cross-border truck drivers. Their point is, okay, yeah, the vaccine is fine and all that, but this is killing our economy. It's kill- uh, Trudeau's 50, my producer Clark Willis says. Um, interestingly, though, uh, you know, they're saying this is killing the supply chain. And just let it slide. What we said yesterday, just let it slide. So it was signed by Premiers Jason Kenney and Scott Moe. It was also signed by the governors of Montana, Alabama, Alaska, Arkansas, governor of Georgia, Idaho, Iowa, Mississippi, Missouri, Nebraska, South Dakota, South Carolina, North Dakota, Tennessee, Utah, and Wyoming. Gee, Cooper didn't sign that? What a shock. What a shock. Uh, now, this, this last story to end on is funny. U.S. Education Secretary Miguel Cardona, um, he decided that as a part of the education department's hashtag love teaching, the social media campaign, Cardona has been sharing thoughts on different themes the Biden administration has prioritized in its uh, education agenda, misguided as it is. On Tuesday, yesterday, the theme was Tremendous Tuesday, and it included a challenge to tell a six-word story that describes why you love teaching. Okay. Cordona, the cabinet secretary, who's in the middle of multiple controversies, including caving to union pressure to keep students out of school for months, and then still into masks, he decided he would start things off tweeting why he loves teaching. He said, I love teaching because, quote, the smile on the student's face. <laughs> yes, the guy that's forcing the kids to wear masks, according to the education department, 
The reason why he loves teaching is so he can see the smile on the student's face. Good luck with that. Hey, our thanks to uh, Mitch Kokai from the uh, John Locke Foundation. We'll do it again tomorrow. Play a little political trivia. We'll see you then. Bye-bye, everybody. All right, all right, all right.